Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. We as conscious consumers have seen a spike in quote-unquote green companies in recent years promising they're committed to sustainability. Most even have a well-written sustainability plan to go with it. But once we start peeling back the layers of the promises, we quickly see that a lot of these green claims are not substantiated with true science and sound business practices. So what does it actually take to turn a company green? Can one company inspire entire industries, such as music and podcasting, to change their practices for the better of the planet? And how does one even begin to tackle this monumental task? To explore this very important topic, today we're sitting down with Andy Land, the head of sustainability at Focusrite, a top-of-the-line audio equipment and manufacturing company. Like several other guests on the podcast, Andy's journey into sustainability was anything but straight. Trained in music and sound recording at university, Andy found that he really enjoyed the tech side of music and joined Focusrite over a decade ago, taking a part in fixing audio equipment products for clients. As he progressed in his career and his own personal exploration of sustainable habits, he noticed the need and opportunity to bring sustainability into focus rights practices. Luckily for him, the company also saw the importance of properly understanding and investing in this area. And so he became the head of sustainability in 2021, helping to develop and embed sustainable practices throughout the full product lifecycle. Andy and I chat a lot about his fun journey that went from music tech to sustainability expert, how a company can indeed make a sustainable product with recycled materials that is just as good as its current products, what it takes to develop accurate impact numbers, and resources for anyone else trying to turn their company green. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening, follow the podcast on your favorite social media platform, and maybe even share your favorite episode with a friend or two that you think would enjoy it too. Also, I'm working on some big changes to the podcast that I'll announce soon, and email subscribers will be the first in the know. If you'd like to join Rewildology's list, head on over to Rewildology.com and sign up. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Andy. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast today and talking about a new topic for the show, even after almost 80 episodes. I'm very excited to give this new story of how do we green or how do we change an industry and be a leader in it. And so really excited to really just pick your brain and dive into your knowledge. But of course, you haven't always been in conservation and sustainability. So what's your journey that led you to what you're doing today? Yeah, thanks very much for um, for having me on. So yeah, my, my route to um, a sustainability career has been, yeah, like you say, not not the traditional way through through education um, to to study the topic in an in, in academic sense. Um, I was thinking about how I would answer this because if I go back all the way to to what I was originally interested in when I was much younger, I think there were a couple of themes. I always liked music. I always liked design technology as a subject and I like science. So I think, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but um, in the UK, um, we often get careers advice at school. And I remember being 
we've been going through the, the questionnaire to answer what kind of things you're interested in, try and work out what your career path might be. Uh, and I was told I could either be a music teacher or a civil engineer based on my <laughs> interests, which was um, either of those was not necessarily what I wanted to be doing. And it didn't really combine all of my interests. So I, I ended up doing music and sound recording at university, which um, included the music side a bit of the technology side, I guess. Um, and I really like recording sound anyway. So I was that, that kind of ticked off a lot of boxes. But um, it was always the, the, the science side and the, the design side that weren't necessarily incorporated there. Um, when I was at university, I think I, I, in my mind, I thought I was going to end up at a recording studio probably. Um, I went to this course and I was thinking my ideal career after this would probably be a, a recording engineer at Abbey Road or something like that which um, ultimately didn't work out. Um, but to be honest, I think the the 80-hour weeks that they may be working is probably it's probably for the best. So yeah. um, um, I actually did a placement year, and, I, and, and that's how I got to, to focus right. Um, so I did a placement year in the service department, and I found that working at a, a company that makes music technology equipment, uh, it was actually far more far more interesting because I, I could look at the design and the technology side and see how projects are come together to, to make a product at the end of it. So I really found that that kind of clicked with me and I had access still to all the same equipment that I would probably get at Abbey Road um, and I could just use it on the weekends. So that was how I ended up at Focusrite and I then graduated, came back to a full-time role and in the service department that I was in, I moved up to becoming service manager eventually and that then led to me to look at the environmental footprint of my department where I was starting to have an influence over those kinds of things. Um, there were a couple of people that had started at the time to, to maybe look at the environmental side at Focusrite, but nothing official, no, no full-time positions or anything. And I, I joined that group of people discussing the, the greener side of things, uh, what we could be doing there. And that quickly meant I ended up chairing it. And one thing has led to the other. And I, I was telling the CEO, you need a full time role in this and that I should be that person. So that is how I ended up here uh, with very much operational knowledge of how a company works and, and knowledge of the products. But uh, yeah, not, not necessarily coming from the environmental science background at university or anything like that. But yeah, that's that's uh, how I got here. So just for a little bit of background for anybody listening, they might not know what Focusrite is. So just really quickly, could you take me through a brief overview of what your company does and then we'll transition into what you do exactly? Yeah, so Focusrite is a is a group of companies uh, with many brands in it now that we've basically got two main customers the, so we've got content creators, which is podcasters, musicians, uh, people making sound for music and TV, that kind of thing. Anything where quite literally content is created. And we've got sound reproduction where you've got, uh, a, let's say, a live venue or a hospitality setting where you need sound reproduced in a space. Um, so we make products, music technology products or audio technology products to fill those two segments, basically. Um and I guess today, I guess probably be more speaking about the Focusrite side where we make uh, usually interfaces or audio interfaces so people can record music. Um, but yeah, we will be talking about other, other things like this podcasting interface today as well. So why? I think that that's the next, for me, that that's the question that came to mind. Why did you decide 
that you wanted to look into the environmental footprint. Like there's so many things that you could be looking at. Like you said, you're not necessarily trained in environmental sustainability. So like, where did this idea come from? Were you inspired by like a video or or the movement or why did you take yeah. this on? Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one challenge I've set myself because if you look at the the music tech industry, it's there's very few examples of anyone doing anything on environmental sustainability. There are a few pockets of people doing things, but most companies' websites don't even feature the word environment, or they're talking about a studio recording environment, which is the, not the same thing. So, yeah, it's it's it is a bit of a challenge because there's no precedent on how you get started with this. Um, but uh, you know, I wanted to include that science side of it. I've always been um, trying to reduce my own footprint outside of work. Anyway, and I think um, probably the thing that had the biggest impact on me was when I discovered the footprint of beef, and in and immediately overnight just stopped eating beef and haven't. I don't think I've eaten it since 2014 when I discovered the footprint per kilo yeah. of beef. So that's that's <laughs> that's what I've done uh, on a personal level. And that immediately thought me got me thinking about what we're doing at work because that is a that's something that we have a have you know so there is a relatively large footprint to what we do um, for the things we the decisions we're making at work and you know we need to to yeah see what we can do to reduce that obviously. Oh, that makes sense. So it's more of like a personal mission. Like you were in your own life trying to reduce your own impact and then seeing the correlations in your day-to-day -day at work, which we spend so many hours at every single week. So it's not yeah. like it was more of just like a natural transition or just a natural expansion of what you were already looking into. Is that, does that sound about correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the, the job I was doing in the services department, I, I've, I've been hands-on trying to prevent units and uh, unit products ending up in landfill by fixing them myself. And I, I've been doing that for many years. So in my mind, I was actually, when you look at what the department I was in was doing, we were actually trying our best to try and keep these products working for longer and fixing them rather than replacing them with, with new things. So that, and at the same time, we were also looking at product quality and trying to prevent units from failing in the field at the same time. Uh, and we had some really great success on that. And I think that work is still, still continuing. Um, so I was already trying to do what I could to, to reduce the environmental impacts. And it was, I've been in the, the job for a number of years and, and thinking, well, we need to do more on this. Um, we're also getting to a certain size where uh, certain, you know, we're, we're a publicly traded company and there were questions coming in about what we're doing on the environment. So it was quite timely mm. in that sense that there was me thinking from my personal um, life, trying to improve my footprint and trying to improve my department's footprint. And then this outside pressure of shareholders asking us what we're doing. Um, there's the the overhead over looming threat of of regulation and things like that 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 can affect businesses so uh it actually made the argument quite quite straightforward because everything kind of came together quite nicely and you happen to place yourself there at the forefront of it <laughs> i think that was very yeah that was very lucky uh that that all worked out yeah yeah so i guess for context when did you start working at focus right when was the first you had like a service internship? So my, yeah, my placement year was in 2010. I um, So 2011, I went back to university, graduated 2012, and I've been at Focusrite since 2012. 
So you were well established. So like they knew who you were. So it's not like yeah. you're just like coming in like six months in, like, let's change everything you do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I um I when I joined, I think there must have been about 60 people at the company. And I remember it was around that because um I could remember everyone's name and we all fit on one floor of the building. Uh now it's I, I don't know what the latest ad count is, probably about five hundred people. So it's grown quite significantly I, I must admit i don't know everyone's name anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah sounds like quite significant growth which yeah. i can only imagine how difficult that makes your actual role itself trying to reduce impact so let's let's actually dive into that so you are the head of sustainability for focus right yeah that is one heck of a title that is awesome so <laughs> what exactly do you do do what does your day-to-day -day look like and i guess if you also once you go through that can you take it up a notch and like how do you take a massive well-established audio equipment company and make them green yeah so day-to-day <laughs> -day then um there, there's a lot of this will kind of depend on what comes in or what needs to be looked at there is no no set um day-to-day -day rotor that i follow which I really like about it. There's no there's no to do list as such. Uh, it's what I what I deem is the most important thing to be done. But um, a lot of what I do, um, at least over the last year, has been trying to establish a really thorough baseline of where we stand. And I've been doing these lifecycle assessments of products where I physically get a product, disassemble it to its last the last component I can realistically get to weigh every component build that back up with some conversion metrics and then you can work out the environmental footprint of that product so we've got over 200 products around the focus right group that we sell i've managed to do this 37 38 times so far wow. but that doesn't mean that we need to actually do all 200 plus products because a lot of our products are actually just bigger or smaller versions of one of the one of the others so um I can actually I can speed that process up by kind of interpolating between them. If the product only weighs 20% more, assume the footprint is 20% more. And that's how you can kind of quickly build up a baseline footprint for the company. Um, so that's basically taken me about a year to get to this point. And I'm almost at the point where on where on some of these brands, I'm actually starting to get to the point where I've got enough coverage of enough products that I can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that this is the footprint for this brand. Um, there's a little bit more of that work to do, but ultimately I see that work going to be shifting towards new products so we can focus exclusively on them because I don't have any backdating work to be done on our, our, our footprint so far. Um, so that's taken up a fair amount of my time. Um, and that kind of leads on to any number of initiatives that maybe need to be done because there's when I've looked at the footprint of a product that doesn't necessarily tell me um, what the next action is I have to go in with an open mind so it could be that you know, one very specific component is the biggest contributor to that footprint and then I might go and speak off to someone else in in the department the the, the hardware teams or something and um, work out what we can do there have we got any options there um, but equally, it could be that there's a range of different contributors to that that's that's causing that footprint to be quite high. So um, it, it could lead on to anything else. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be designed. It could be operations. It could be how we're shipping the product. It could be the packaging. It could be anything, really. 
So that's why I don't necessarily have a day-to-day thing that I I get on with every day. Uh, It's whatever needs to be done that I've uncovered so far. Um, But the other big side of of what I do is is the corporate side where we've got some shareholder relations. I may need to speak to shareholders, answer some of their questions. But equally, we've got um, compliance things. We've got to report our emissions. We've got to, to follow certain reporting standards. So... Um, those are pretty big projects in their own right. Um, and yeah, we have to get them right because they need to be audited externally as well. So I think between those two, that covers most of what I do, but then equally that doesn't mean someone's not going to message me. In fact, recently I just had one of the guys in the, the hardware team at Focusrite message me, said he's just done a beekeeping course. Can we get a, can we get a hive? And now I'm looking (laughs) to beehives and stuff. So it could be anything really that, that people are interested in. Wow, that is amazing. Oh my gosh, I love beekeeping. That is so cool and it's such a great yeah. example. So Focus Ray is going to have their own bees now? Uh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Stop we'll, it. We'll see, we'll see. If you can get that to the US, let me know. <laughs> I would love to have some. Oh my gosh, that would be fantastic, fantastic. So I think maybe on the next question, when you were saying this, sometimes when we are trying to change things, it's not always welcome, I guess is the best way to say it. You know, when we're trying to make change, we're trying to make green changes. Sometimes there is pushback. Sometimes there's just conflict of some sort. Have you run into that much or has it been relatively easy? I mean, changing these products can't, I can't imagine that being an easy task. So what's that actually been like actioning your ideas for changing these footprints? Yeah, so it's um I think at the moment there's enough low hanging fruit and obvious things that we need to fix that have obvious alternatives and solutions available that it's gonna take a little while before we've exhausted that that pool of easy wins, as as it were. And uh we need to obviously go through that first and gain confidence in this area. So there's not actually been much conflict there. Um, I wouldn't say. I think that and in general, I think folks right being uh, and, and I guess zooming out even further, musicians in general are, are generally pretty engaged with this topic of climate change and, and they get the the necessity and often you find that they are some of the most vocal campaigners on these issues. So um, a lot of people at Focusrite uh, are musicians themselves and they, they care about this stuff very deeply. So it's not been difficult to convince people. The, the tricky thing is when maybe something costs a bit more um, you have to put that in context as to is that a cost now or is it a, in five, ten years time? Is that still going to be a, a cost versus digging new stuff out of the ground versus some recycled material now? So those things are, are pretty f- few and far between, actually. I'm, I'm finding actually a lot of the alternative materials don't cost any more, or maybe they even some of the initiatives we're doing could be a cost down. So um, it's not really been a, a, a problem, I would say. But that it helps that we're in the music industry, and a lot of people get this that that this is important, and our customers are asking for this as well because they're out campaign, campaigning for this stuff. So um, it's been a pretty easy sell, and it helps that the CEO's completely bought into this, CFO is completely bought in. Um, yeah, it really helps that you've got that upper management buy-in. Yeah, leadership is so key because <laughs> if they yeah. say yes, then everyone else. Has to say yes. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> and I, I really love that you bring, bring up the music world and also 
one of the reasons why we're sitting down today, I think people that are more inclined in this way are very open and maybe even willing to spend a couple more bucks if it means that we're going to have less impact. Like Focusrite is the only brand that I have talked about in any way, shape or form. Like I'm currently using your Scarlet Studio and the next product that I'm going to bring up is going to be a perfect example of where you all are going and why I'm so excited and actually open and willing mm. to talk with somebody from Focus Right, like the head of sustainability, because clearly we have the same ethos. And most companies don't. It's I there's no other way to say it. Greenwashing is real. And since there is a movement from a consumer base to make companies go green, they're cutting all the corners. But you guys aren't. And that's why I respect you so much. And so let, let's just shift to the new product then. So this Vocaster, as it's called, which is really yep. cool, really exciting. Um, just tell me about it. How did this idea come to be? What is this product? How was it green? What was your hand in it? I mean, I mean, all the things. And yeah, so just just go there and I'll ask for the Sure, questions. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of wary that this this sounds a bit like an advert for a vocaster, um, and, and really I want to focus on the green stuff here. So um, I, I will briefly hold up the product. This is so this is the vocaster one. Um, there is a vocaster two as well. The product is basically for exactly what we're doing here. This is this is a product to help with podcasting um, and recording voiceovers and things like that. So you can plug a microphone into it. In fact, this is one of the microphones that comes with the studio version of it. I'm using the headphones that come with it as well. So, um, it, you can, you can get this, this setup and you can record stuff just like we're doing right now. Uh, and, and versus our, our interfaces, which are more for music, uh, creation. This one is, is kind of, it's got built-in features that help uh, in fact, right now I'm using some of the, the 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 features on it to help my voice sound a bit more like it's on the radio. Uh, if I quickly turn it off, I sound a bit more distant and a little yeah. less less radio like. If I turn that back on, hopefully I sound a bit deeper. I've got that radio voice, so yeah, it, it makes the process a lot easier. And I've actually been using it for a couple of days for Zoom calls and things like that. And I'm finding it's a it is a big upgrade in terms of um, my sound quality versus using just the microphone on my webcam and it's actually really easy to use. So the product itself then, um, so let's let's talk about the, the, the sustainability stuff and how it, how it came about then. And um, so I find out very early on the, the, the products we're gonna be designing. So very early on, I knew we wanted to create something for, for podcasting uh, and maybe streaming, that kind of thing. So um, they said it was going to be a desktop type interface versus uh, I've got a Scarlet here, so this this sits flat on a desk, and you've got the controls on the front. The Vocaster sits flat on a desk, and the controls are on the top. So they told me it was going to be like that. It was going to be made of plastic, and that's roughly roughly where it was where I started putting my input in. Um, I, in effect, my input was, can we make it our recycled plastic? The hardware teams went off and found a supplier of plas recycled plastic. And then we got a thumbs up from <laughs> from above to say, yes, let's use it. So it was almost as simple as that. Um, in effect, there were many more steps to try out the material, see how it worked. Um, but in, in, I think the, the resin that they found, the recycled plastic, was actually a, a really good uh, option that they managed to find. Because I think if you look at other recycled plastics that you see out there in electronics products, quite often they might be saying 30 or 30, 40% recycled content something like that we've actually got an 85 percent 
post-consumer recycled plastic here, which is actually um, not far off the, the magic 100. So uh, that's that, I think that's a really great resin to be using. Um, if, if, to give one other high-profile example, the, the Microsoft uh, are currently using, they, they're selling an ocean plastic mouse, which has a very nice color scheme, but it only has 20% recycled plastic in it, mm. unfortunately. Um, I think they, there is there are multiple reasons for that. They're, they're going the ocean plastic route, which means that you've got much more in terms of contamination of the raw material. You don't know exactly what material it is that you're getting, and that's why it can only be, I think, up to 20%. Um, for something like this, we, we've got a vendor that is providing us recycled plastic that is from a known source. So uh, this is ABS plastic. And I think a lot of the sources they've told us it's from is from like old printers that you see in, in offices, the really massive ones and things like oh, that. Okay, so okay. they're breaking down specifically, specifically them and making this recycled material because it's a more controlled waste stream with a shorter loop back to new material. They can get this percentage higher. So... Um, I think it's I think it's a, a good option for us to be using, and it's got many many other applications around the Focusrite group, which is which is very exciting. Vocus is obviously the first one we're we're trying it out with, um, but yeah, definitely not going to be the last by any means. So, how did you find that vendor? So, I'm just trying to think of if somebody's listening, and I, I will ask a lot more about this too, like. Because there is a sustainability movement in corporate world where like they are building sustainability departments. We have sustainability managers, like blah, blah, blah. Like this is a really a thing now. Yeah. And a lot of these companies are products. How did you find this vendor? Did you find them specifically and connect them with the hardware team? Like how did that relationship start? Did it take a lot of sifting to find somebody to actually do this? So yeah, that that procurement process, I actually don't get involved with at all. In fact, I think in this case, um, I think what happened is we, because we use contract manufacturers to make our products. Um, I think we went to the contract manufacturer and we said, "Can you get some recycled plastic?" They looked at their vendors and they said, "Yes, we've got one on the books that that has this recycled plastic available." So in that sense, it was quite fortuitous that we didn't. In, at least as far as I remember, I don't think we needed to do that much searching. Um, in, in, in this case, it was quite easy for us. Um, there is, there's definitely going to be other more challenging problems, I think, in the future when we look at some more uh, niche materials, perhaps, rather than ABS plastic. But uh, in this case, it was actually quite straightforward. And I think there's a lot of this stuff we're seeing it's ramping up in, in supply options available in, in the Far East where, where these products are made. So th these... These sources are available, is what we're finding. Um, it may be that there's a bit of a procurement battle between companies to get the supply of it. I think recently we found out that cardboard, for example, they'd run out of recycled cardboard in China, was the rough message I was told, uh, and oh. we couldn't get it. So, um, yeah, but but at least we're, we're in that process of, of trying to get this material uh, and we're demanding it from our vendors. And I think that's really helpful to help drive that um, that supply chain and, and closing that loop. So, so old products that are recycled do have an actual place. Someone's going to buy the material at the end of it. I think that's really important. Yeah, because the, if the demand isn't there, then what does a company have to actually make the product from yeah. the recycled, just raw material to be put into something else? Which yeah. is, I found really interesting. Um, you know, just having done so much research into this myself, and I'm sure you have as well. That buying something recycled is 
almost always better than buying something that is just degradable, like naturally biodegradable, because you yeah. are fueling the economy to create more recycled materials as opposed to just throwing something away. So that is always my goal is like go for, and I didn't know that intuitively. Like I had to talk to some other experts that are essentially trash experts. And yep. they were like, go for the recycled materials because you are helping to basically put your dollars where your mouth is. Like you said that you want this. So then support the companies that are making that. And so that sounds like really on, on point to what you just said as well. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's obviously part of it. And I think even as a, as a worst case, even if you are trying to recycle something and that, that there is no market for that, at least you're putting it out there and making that price. Uh, I think the economics of it need to need to level out. So the recycled option is, is cheaper than the getting new stuff out of the ground, particularly plastic where you, you have to have an oil rig somewhere offshore to, to get oil out of the ground usually to, to make this stuff. And I just can't see how that should be more expensive than recycling material that's already out there. And that's exactly the same for, for metals and, and mining stuff out of the ground. That, that shouldn't be a process that's cheaper than just taking existing metal, melting it with an electric furnace and, and reselling it. So yeah, we need to make sure we're, we're kind of embedding ourselves within those those material loops so we're yeah buying that material and i think this next question i, I you've kind of hinted on it and i i would like to address it more head on so this price versus quality thing sometimes it's hard to make the argument that having an 85 percent recycled plastic new product is going to have the same quality as maybe something that was just brand new spick and span off off the lot, you know, just like this is brand new. All the products are new. So how yeah. do you balance that? How do you make a new product that you can market and it really does have the same quality and the same integrity? Because I know that your company is really big on having really high quality products. So just how do you do that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give give the example on the Vocaster. Uh, and then I've got another example um, that I'll go through as well. So, so the Vocaster, um, there's basically this when i was looking at the plastic of this there's basically four situations well four use cases of this plastic that are unique here that i think are interesting to have been trialed with this recycled material so firstly we've got the structural strength the product needs to be physically strong enough and, and I, I this does not flex or bend it, it behaves exactly the same as as regular abs um so it kind of passes that test the quality is is there it is structurally sound um if you look at the bottom cover of this, actually, there's there's this kind of speckled finish in it, and that mm -hmm. is that's nothing actually to do with the recycling content of it. It's actually a design decision to put in these these white flecks of slightly higher melting point plastic to give it this speckled finish, um, and that again is another new use case. I don't believe we'd ever done that on a product before. So introducing, in effect, purposefully adding defects to the product. And still, it's got that structural rigidity, so it can handle these these speckles in it as well. Um, third thing that's interesting on this, there's there's a button on the back uh, for the power for the microphones. That's actually part of the chassis and is a flexible, thinned out piece of the plastic. So with normal ABS, you can do that perfectly fine. And on this recycled one, we're still able to do that flexible, um, thinner bit of plastic and it's perfectly fine again structurally to to handle that flexing so um and then the final one 
is which is quite easy uh, and there shouldn't have been any issues with any of it but this red ring we've got around the edge this is actually part of a sub panel that goes across the front of the unit um that holds the main structure this this thin this bit that you've got on top unfortunately is not actually recycled plastic because that needs to be semi-transparent and, and we have that's a different type of plastic that we need to use for that um, but underneath there is the main structural top panel of that uh, and that has a has a painted red ring around the edge so again we can we're, we're painting that and, and the recycled material is perfectly fine as as an option there as well so between those four um, kind of features or use cases of this plastic it's it's passing on all of them and there's no issues with any of them um so quality wise there's no difference um if we took the speckles out made a, a, a one of our other products out of this uh, and just kind of dropped it into the tool you probably wouldn't notice that there's any difference and to give the other example we've got a scarlet here which is actually made out of recycled aluminium and at a recent investor day I was walking around with two scarlets, one recycled and one not, and nobody could tell the difference between oh, them. Wow. So, so quite literally, the the quality was not affected by using recycled materials. And yeah, you've got a scarlet in front of you, and this probably looks exactly the same. So yeah, it does. Yeah, it doesn't affect the quality. That's really that's really helpful. It's really because it, I mean it is an honest thing to think about. It's like okay, well, if I do get the product that is. I mean, because this is stuff that we have to think of as consumers, that it's so difficult to piece through. It's like, okay, do I get the brand yeah. new item that is probably going to last 10, 15 years? Or do I get the recycled one that might not last as long? And so being aware of that as like the builder, you know, the person in sustainability, like that is a real question that, I mean, I know I ask that all the time. And just as you said, musicians and podcasters are and anyone else that's definitely listening to this podcast are going to be more interested in the more sustainable option. But then there are other things you have to weigh. Is this product going to last as long? And that's an honest question. So yeah. to hear that you like, luckily, there's someone like you to actually think all of this through and like to test these things. And yet, yes, this should last just as long. And do you yeah. see this like Vocaster or... I don't know. Do you think it as being like a launching point to like green or hopefully green, like the entire line? Like, do you see this like extrapolating out all the way or how far can you, how can this go? Yeah. So I think what my, the way I'm approaching this is, is less on a product by product basis. And it's more, um, I guess you could say just an initiative based process. So I've I've got the so to give the one that's slightly further along. We've got the recycled aluminium on the scarlets, and this this works perfectly fine for an extruded um, body of a product like this. And that aluminium is going to be carried over to every other instance of aluminium that we've got steadily. Um, exactly the same with the ABS. We're going to be using moving this ABS over to every other instance over time. Um, and I think it's really great that that we've got this we've got these two products now uh, kind of running at mass production scale so we're building up knowledge of this working out if there is any difference um, because on some of these there are there are slight differences with how you have to handle the material in production but once we know those things we can just ad adjust around them uh, and manage those processes slightly differently so um, we we've we've got this um, product which is actually quite small relatively speaking um, that we're we're now building up to uh, to mass production, like I said, but we've got much bigger plastic products. Uh, if you look at the Novation products that we've got, uh, the keyboards, 
big 61 key keyboards that we've got um they would use much more plastic to create that kind of size product so we we need to see how this works um seems perfectly <laughs> seems structurally fine to me um and if we can scale this up to to some of the other bigger products that's going to open more knowledge up to us so we we have the confidence to use this in more more instances so yeah definitely this is this is the start of um i guess that process of rolling it out and and the way i'm approaching it is is less that this is uh, a product this is when i look at this this is a, a test case for recycled abs uh, mm -hmm. there will be test cases i imagine for for recycled uh, hips or high impact polystyrene uh, for um, steel, hopefully, uh, down the line, and other just kind of core material types that we can hopefully swap in recycled alternatives. Uh, and each of those will will impact the entire product portfolio ultimately. And I think the next natural question after this is for anyone and more inclined on the sustainability side, one of the biggest issues we have with our economy is it's all linear. It's you buy the product, it's it's made new, you yeah. buy the product, you use it until it's gone and or until it's done. It's no longer used for its original purpose and then it goes to a landfill. So every, there's a big movement now and a lot of talk on this circular economy. And yeah. I, I read in depth, of course, because it's me, your company's commitment to sustainability statement. And this is mentioned, a circular economy. And yeah. I would love to hear more about that and where you all are in that and how close you are or how do you plan on implementing this because it is really a big problem and so the fact that you're addressing it is really exciting so how do you yeah. hope to make this a circular economy yeah so yeah the circular economy um for, for anyone who hasn't heard the term it's it's basically where your raw materials for making new products are the leftovers of our are that are taken directly from old products that can be recycled and in an ideal world that is a completely closed loop so you can make new vocasters out of old vocasters or something like that so we we need to think about what we can do to have the biggest impact on that and i think the first thing we need to do is, is obviously start using recycled materials so at least someone else's waste stream is going into our products um, which is why i've put so much emphasis so far on recycled materials that we're putting into the products um, but equally important is end of life of our products and this is something that is is difficult to find out a, a precise answer on because we sell lots of these and they go around the world so i don't i can't say exactly where every single one of them ends up um, but i don't believe these kind of products end up in landfill as such uh, compared to uh, a milk carton or something like that where it's definitely a more throwaway short-term product. Um, there's definitely secondhand markets for, for these kinds of products that, that they, they pass through hands multiple times and it's, it's difficult to say that they actually end up in landfill. But in terms of how we're building these products, there's nothing about these that can't be taken apart with hand tools. Uh, there's very few components that... Um, or, or mechanically, there's there's very little on our products that would be permanently bonded together. There'd have to be a very good reason for us to glue something. It makes it, 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 taking the sustainability side apart. It makes it difficult to manufacture it in the first place if you have to glue something together. So by yeah having having an easy to assemble product also means it's an easy to disassemble and easy to recycle product. So if you take something like a Vocaster or Scarlet, 
they're actually not as far as you might think away from being what you might call a, a circular product. Uh, if we can get get the recycled materials in up front, we're actually doing quite well, I would say, on that. But obviously, that's something we we need to communicate to customers so we can say exactly how you recycle these products, uh, breaking down the materials, uh, how you disassemble them. And that's that's definitely something that's on my, my roadmap. Um, but like I say, because I don't think many of them actually end up in landfill uh, in the same way that kind of single-use plastics will, it's I think getting the recycled materials in up front is probably the priority that we need to to focus on for the time being. Mm, that makes sense. And do you see maybe like further down the line, like a whole, what's the word I'm looking for? Like almost like a sh- ship back to us, like, and then we'll handle the flip or if it's like, if it's still in great quality, selling it as like a second hand. Like I also love photography. And so a lot of the name brands, you can go to their websites and buy certified yeah. reused essentially it's like secondhand of their cameras or something like that are you envisioning maybe something like that down the line or do you think that yeah. that's possible so that's that's definitely something we we do and um a lot of the products i used to fix in service would be sold on as b-stock so we've been doing that for many years and mm. um that again has a it's something that i didn't really frame as a sustainability initiative at the time but is is obviously something that's helping towards that goal so we we actually do quite a lot of that, and um, I think in the UK we have there's a there is a law that you have to as a manufacturer take back any of your products as waste and recycle them anyway. Um, I don't know if any customers have actually taken us up on that, but uh, that is something that we we do offer as well. Um, but yeah, trading schemes and things like that that um, uh, allow you to reclaim the product are, are always great things because they help kind of close that loop and. and make sure that the product, you know, a product could be recycled perfectly fine by a customer, but if it comes back to us, we've got more control over that process. So, um, yeah, that is definitely something we're, we're going to be looking at. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for exploring that with me. So let's say that somebody listening is also in a more of a sustainability role. Like they are trying to create the least impactful, you know, the best products possible at their company. And since you've started this from scratch, this, you, you literally made a role that didn't exist before. Did you have any resources that you really found helpful or uh, the main reason why I'm asking someone might just be starting this out for the, uh, for themselves brand new. Like they might not know where to start, or, um, maybe they're coming into a company where they're going to do something similar. Yeah. and along your journey, did anything really help you like take a leap forward or answer your questions or any resources like that? Yeah, so it's probably not very helpful an answer, but I, I didn't find much useful stuff when I was le- trying to work out how I could do this stuff. Um, I, but I have had this validated by another company because they took the same approach. One of the first things I did was just take apart a product, like I, like I said, take it apart to as many components apart as you can weigh everything and if you just go online you can find out the rough footprint for aluminium for plastic and other other standard materials so that is definitely one of the very first things you can do if you're making physical products so um it is a time-consuming process to try and build up a, a process like that but to give you an idea of how much more efficient 
it's become uh when i do that now I, in fact just this afternoon i was taking part in another product uh, which had 227 components in it um only 67 of them i hadn't footprinted before so using my existing data it's now a much faster process where there's much less work for me to do every time i take apart something and particularly if you've got products where they share a lot of components you can start to speed that process up but then i have done this 37 38 times so i've got a lot of existing data i can call on um but yeah that's a great way to get started and something else i would say is um find online webinars from companies that seem to be doing quite well at this and see what they're saying so just to, one of the ones i started out with was looking at the economist and their events so they run a sustainability week which is very useful because you get a range of different companies there from from ikea to uh, microsoft and uh, unfortunately a lot of fossil fuel sponsorship but it's it's uh, one of the ones that i go along to as much as i can uh, listen to them just to see what they're saying uh, and keep a tab on on what's going on there but the the ones like ikea and microsoft are really interesting ikea because they've got so many products and they talk in a very plain way as to how you approach this i think i something i learned from them was that they were saying if as long as you can get it about 60 percent accurate for the footprint of your products that is good enough to make business decisions to decrease the emissions from there so that's quite a good rule of thumb because you're never going to get the footprint completely accurate of something. Uh, and Microsoft is really interesting because they uh, obviously have a lot of data knowledge and IT knowledge. So how you handle this data is really interesting to see what they're doing with it and how uh, you can take inspiration from how they're organizing things there. So yeah, I would say take apart a product, physically get hands on with them and then see what some of the best practice people are doing because what I've found is there's not really a how to get started with this guide uh, that exists out there. Yeah, thanks, those were great tips and I'll definitely be sure to put those in the show notes as well to see if anybody else wants to check out those because that sounds really interesting even as a, I'm not technically in sustainability, uh, just I'm not developing an actual product but that sounds absolutely fascinating even from a, a consumer standpoint. What are these big companies doing? Like, who yep. should I be supporting? Because again, everything's so greenwashed. It's really hard to tell who's doing what and why. So let, let's switch gears a little bit and let's move back to you. As I said in the previous question, you are carving your own path. Like you're going into the unknown, which is really exciting. But also at the yep. same time, there's no way this can be easy. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, what would you say has been the most difficult part of your journey or what have you struggled through the most that maybe you've overcome or you might be still going through? Yeah. So the single most difficult thing I've, I've encountered other than where to get started, but I think that's kind of, I, I know where I'm going with that now. And that's kind of a problem that's solved for me at least. Um, the single biggest problem I would say is how you handle all of this data because there is a lot of data. And even though I'm pretty good at Excel and I used to calculate failure rates when I was in the service department, this is another step up in terms of how much data you need to handle. Um, so I think going into this role, I thought there was such a thing as a carbon footprint for a product. Uh, I know now that is a load of nonsense. There's no such thing. Um, 
if even if you look at the greenhouse gas protocol, there are seven greenhouse gas gases that are called out there. So immediately there are seven footprints per product that you need to be aware of. And that doesn't even in include other things like the water footprint or uh, to go really specific, you can get to uh, liquid waste that's discharged into um, river river waste. That's the category of emissions that is is out there. And there are hundreds of these potential pollutants for every material type and every process that exists. So even if you're looking at one product, there is no such thing as a single footprint. There are many, many of <laughs> these different footprints that need to be calculated. Um, and that's before you've even looked at how many routes to market you've got as a business. Just how many times, how, what, how many combinations of how you can sell this product to a customer. And then the time factor of which years, because the electricity grids change in their emissions every year. So there are so many moving parts. I just quickly worked out, just to give an idea of how many potential routes you could get. Um, let's say a product has 250 components, which is not unusual. And let's say there's only 150 pollutants to track, which again, is not out of the question. Uh, immediately for one product, you've got 37 and a half thousand profiles that you need to be looking after. Um, and then there's 500 routes to market, which again is not unusual. So you're at 19 million rows in your table already. We sell 250 SKUs, 4.7 billion rows if you do it the brute force route. So immediate, there's obviously a better way to handle this data than just going the brute force route. Um, but yeah, you could very quickly end up with billions of rows. And that's actually something I ended up getting into a data cul-de-sac or dead end um, where I just couldn't load the data set anymore very early on. And uh, yeah, I've had to rethink how I store this data quite a few times, but now I've, I think I'm on my way to a, a better solution for this, which is far more efficient. But yeah, I, I don't think I, I thought I could do this in Excel when I started. I definitely, you can't use Excel if you want to do this. You can get started in it, but definitely need to go on to more advanced tools to try and handle this data. Um, but you have to do it to this level of detail unless if, if you want to be setting, say, a decarbonization target, in, in my view at least, if you want to work out exactly what you're going to be doing for the next 20 years or so, um, through this method, I can eventually, when I've got my data in the right format, I could say, well, let's use recycled ABS in all of our products from 2024 or something like that. How does that impact our footprint? Because we've got the sales forecast, we can say emissions from grids are going to improve 5% a year. And you can swap in this new material and see how our footprint changes. So once you've got that level of detail and granularity, you can make that kind of decision to swap in hypothetical materials and see how your emissions are going to change in the future. And I don't see how you can decarbonize and, and reduce the environmental impact of a company without going to that level of detail to, to be able to answer that question definitively and work out what is the best thing that you can be doing now to, to try and reduce your impact. So yeah, I'd, I'd say the data is the biggest challenge that I've, I've been working on. But yeah, I think I'm getting there with it. Wow, I can see why. And also too, to, I think that helps put it in perspective, definitely for me, someone who's never developed a product from scratch, and hopefully for anybody listening as well. I mean, no wonder why so many companies just 
make these blanket statements because who knows if they have someone as dedicated as you or knowledgeable or the resources to figure out their footprints and on that level to decarbonize. So that's awesome. But let's flip this around a little bit. So that does sound very overwhelming. And some days you're probably just like, <laughs> yeah. oh my good God, I don't know. I I, I don't know. Like I just need yeah. a glass of wine or a whiskey and just just not think about it for a second. So what is your motivation for doing this? Why are you still going? And and like, what's your greater goal that you hope to accomplish? Yeah, I I think the 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 big hairy audacious goal sitting over this is that I think music tech should be one of the leaders on environmental sustainability, and it, I think there's no reason it couldn't be. Um, we have the customer base that is very active and engaged with this. Uh, we're in technology so we can take advantage of, of how technology is adapting to this problem. Because if you look at what Microsoft, Google, or to go on the, the far, far more proactive side, Fairphone, for example, they're doing great things with, with sustainability and using recycled materials and so on. So I don't think our products are, are anywhere near as, as complicated mechanically as something like a mobile phone. A lot of music tech products are quite easy to disassemble and maintain and fix and keep going. Um, so I think music tech could be a real environmental sustainability leader. I think the whole industry should become become as green as possible. So that's really what I'm trying to influence. And putting we've got a statement on our website that says we want to become environmental sustainability leaders in our industry, which is... Um, very audacious in its in its uh, you know what it's trying to achieve and i think we should be we should be aiming to be that leader and by by in effect by if you if you're a leader that means everyone else is trying to follow along as well rather than just kind of not paying attention to the environmental footprint of their products so yeah i think we should be trying to make the entire industry as green as possible which I know someone like me really appreciates. I grew up in a very musical family. Like I was a drummer. I'm taking yep. a little bit of a pause, but my dad's a drummer. My parents had a band that I, that's how I grew up. And so yep. my best friend and her husband are Nashville artists. So that's just the music side. And now that I'm in podcasting, this this is needed. Like we want these things. And so to know that somebody is actually stepping up to the plate to give us what we need as more environmentally conscious consumers is it's awesome. Like it's so, I'm so appreciative of that and hopefully more companies follow, just like you said. Yeah. I, I definitely want others to follow because as far <laughs> as I can work out, I'm the only person doing this full time in, wow. in music tech. So yeah, I guess an open call. If someone is listening in music tech that does this full time, do, do contact me because it'd be nice to know I'm not the only person. <laughs> That would be awesome. <laughs> Collaborating so much fun. So what advice do you have for anybody listening? And this could be anything. This could be high level. This could be, if you could just share a message, what would you mm. love that to be? Um, it's difficult, <laughs> difficult one to answer. Um, yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I would say what I've, what I've learned probably the most is Unless you've gone, well, just considering my own examples and the journey I've gone on, unless you've taken apart a product, for example, let's bring it back to the products, unless you've taken apart a product or a system or something and you understand completely the entire 
footprint of that system. Try not to have any preconceptions about what is going to be the most polluting part of that system or product. Um, a lot of people have these preconceptions that certain things are going to be very polluting. Um, to give an example, when we were looking at the aluminium, I thought aluminium's got a relatively low melting point. It's probably not that polluting versus steel, which is a much higher melting point metal. As it turns out, steel is about five or six times less polluting per kilogram than aluminium. Wow. Um, and it's just because of the processes required to refine aluminium versus steel. And that is something I didn't realize at all. So that's why we've, we started with the aluminium on the Scarlet's. But it's, it's that kind of completely open mind and going in without these preconceptions and just following the data and the science to understand before you make a snap judgment. Um, and, and that might be why I might, in my role, maybe deprioritize certain things that people see as maybe they, they, they feel these are really important things to them, but I can see the data and it's just not going to move the dial almost. I need to focus on these big things that are going to, to get us an environmental win much sooner because that's what we need to do is prioritize that. It's about the cumulative emissions by by net zero that we need to to be looking at. It's not that we're going to miss net zero. I think we, as focus right, will will hit net zero emissions, but it's about the cumulative emissions by the time we get there. So we need to reduce as fast as possible immediately because then the, the overall emissions by the time we reach net zero will be lower. Um, so yeah, keep an open mind when you're looking at these things uh, and try not to be swayed by any preconceptions. That's really good advice. So you you made a call out earlier and I always love to ask if somebody wants to get a hold of you and maybe ask more about your process or how they could get started or just Andy, how the heck are you doing what you're doing? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Um so I don't go on social media or anything like that really uh, other than LinkedIn which is <laughs> very <laughs> which is yeah the business one. So yeah, I am on LinkedIn. You can find me on there. Um but we do actually have a sustainability at focusrightgroup.com email address. Um, within reason, I can't answer everybody's, every customer emailing in to that email address. So it may be that our customer support team answers that. But if someone is you know, from another company that wants to understand this process or they're just starting out on, on their journey, I'm, I'm happy to talk, particularly if it's a music tech company, um, because uh, yeah, like uh, as I say, we we should be um, trying to green that entire industry. And um, yeah, I would say email that that address or find exactly me on LinkedIn. So sustainability at focusrightgroup.com. Okay, awesome, awesome. And of course, all of that will be in the show notes if anybody wants to reach out. Because like I said, podcasting music, we all all of us have our hands together. So there might be yeah. someone listening who is really really interested, but. Yeah, Andy, this has been so much fun. Thanks again for sitting down with me and I can't wait to share everything and all the amazing stuff you're doing. Great. Thanks very much for, for having me on, Brooke. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.